Hey, good morning, church. Hey, we're in Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 18 today. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you're here in the room or watching online, I invite you to join me in Exodus chapter 4. Hey, I know we just started, but I'm just feeling this need to pray. So before we even get into anything this morning, would you just join me in another prayer? God, you are good. Holy Spirit, you are our power. We have no power in ourselves. I confess even up here that I'm inadequate to teach your word. God, we're inadequate to receive it. It is the only the Holy Spirit who can communicate it. It is only the Holy Spirit who can allow us to receive it, to interpret it, to apply it. So Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this room. I pray that you would fall in a mighty way upon us right now, that you would give me not my words, but your words to speak, that your word would be taught with clarity, that you would show us all a picture of Jesus this morning that would challenge each of us to better follow your calling even that calling towards salvation. So God, we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, man, it is great to be back here at Fielder Church and see all of your smiling faces. Like Jim said, if we have not met, my name is Charlie Houck. I was once a staff member here at Fielder. Now I am a church planter and pastor in San Diego, and I get to come back usually about once a year and see all of you, and it's just such a blessing to see what God is doing here at Fielder. Now, some of you guys in here are on my prayer list or email list, or you get Christmas cards from me, but I know that not everyone does, and so I wanted to show you this morning uh, my family's Christmas card picture from this year. So that's my my wife, Audrey, and some of you may remember our very busy son, Lewis, who is the larger of the two, is now four. And last year, by God's grace, we got to welcome our little California baby, baby Benjamin, who you see there with his mommy. So God has been good to us in San Diego in more ways than one, as he's allowed us to be part of a growing church plant, but also to be a growing family. Hey, I've enjoyed listening along to this Exodus sermon series. Jason is still my pastor, and so I often listen to the Fielder Church podcast from San Diego, and since I knew I would have the chance to contribute to this series, I've been listening as they've walked along to the first few chapters of Exodus. I don't know if this is the case for any of you, but I've realized as I've listened to chapters one through four that I can relate to Moses. Now, if you've been around church a while, you know where the story of Moses is going. You know all the great things that he's done. Let me be really clear, I'm not talking about that. But the Moses we've seen so far who's insecure and impetuous and hot-headed and disobedient and anxious when he gets the Lord's call on his life. I relate to that a lot. Like maybe you can relate specifically to that last thing I said, right? Like does the call of God on your life ever make you anxious? Has God ever called you to do something, whether it's something as simple as it seems as raising children or, or, or grandchildren or stepping into a marriage or stepping out of a comfort zone of a job or, or, or whether it's something that we talk about like planting a church or going to the mission field. Has God ever called you to something that causes you a lot of anxiety? Because if that's not you, let me tell you, that's me. And what's so interesting about that is you would think the anxiety that we feel in our calling has to do with things that we're unprepared for or seemingly unprepared for. But in my life, it's actually been the opposite. So five years ago, I got called towards church planting in San Diego. And what's been really interesting is that from the very beginning, while there were many variables, there was one part of my calling that everyone said, hey, at least you've got that figured out. And I believe the same. And that was the financial piece. See, planting churches is is very, very expensive, and I'm not independently wealthy or anything, but my wife and I are blessed with careers that are kind of unusual for a pastor and a pastor's wife. I had worked in the IT field for many years. My wife is a mechanical engineer, and so when I received this call from God to go to San Diego, I kind of put a checkbox by the funding. I said, hey, well, there's a lot of things to figure out, but you know what? We don't have to figure out how we're going to pay for this. We'll just keep working our jobs. You know what's amazing? Finances have been 
one of the biggest sources of anxiety in my journey to San Diego. You would think that the fact that I had this figured out and that we have options, I've literally had friends that tell me, oh man, I'm so jealous of you. I wish I had a job. I wish I could go get a career going. You would think that having that in our back pocket would be a source of confidence, but instead it's been a source of anxiety as we've gone through things like layoffs and uh, job applications that were never returned and and my wife questioning if she was even going to continue in her career. And what I've realized is that in the call of God, as in all other areas of life, anxiety comes from control issues. We try to grab a hold of God's call in our life in any single area and say, okay, God, I've got this. I've got it figured out. You don't have to tell me how to do this part. You can tell me how to do the rest. When we grab control, it causes anxiety. You can look this up online. Number one cause of anxiety in our country right now is trying to control things that we cannot control. And it is no different with the call of God on our life. We're going to see that in the story of Moses here in a moment. Before we even do, I want to give you a very simple main idea that we're going to talk about for the rest of our time together, right? This is not complicated, but it will change your life if you get it. And it's simply this. If God has placed a call on your life, he is in complete control to see it fulfilled. If God has placed a call on your life, he is in complete control to see it fulfilled. I think that's what we'll see here in the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 4. So you can turn your attention there to Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 18. And just to remind you where we've been and where we're headed, we just read in the first half of chapter 4 and in in the second half of chapter 3 about Moses' experience with the burning bush. When he came face to face with Yahweh God, indeed when God introduced himself to Moses and then placed a call on his life to go back into Egypt to lead the Israelite people out of slavery into the desert to worship their Lord. We pick up in verse 18 when Moses is coming down off the mountain and returning to his family and Jethro, his father-in-law. We read in Exodus chapter 4, verse 18, that Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. You can stop there. So you might not see how big of a question Moses just asked his father-in-law in the moment. I certainly didn't see it when I've uh, read this passage in the past, but now having studied it, I realized, let me just tell you, Moses going to Jethro and asking to take his wife Zipporah and their children back to Egypt was a really big deal. You might remember now that it's been 40 years that Moses has been living in Midian. And if you remember, the reason he went to Midian is he was fleeing for his life from Egypt. He was wanted for execution because of murder. Now, he's been part of Jethro's family. He's married his daughter. He's had children. He's been there for 40 years, basically a lifetime. It stands to reason that his wife, his kids, his father-in-law, they knew the reason he had left Egypt. They knew that for him to go back into Egypt was to face certain Death. And he's not just asking his father-in-law to go by himself. He's asking him if he can take Jethro's daughter and grandsons. And on top of all that, let me just tell you, there's probably some single dudes in the room. Let me just tell you, if you don't have a father-in-law yet, you should know it's not always easy to ask your father-in-law things. It's not always easy to talk to them about things. Like it was hard for me to tell my father-in-law that I was taking his daughter and his grandson and his future grandkids to California. And I don't have warrants out in California, like that I know of at least, Right? Moses is asking a difficult question, and he's asking it to the man who was truly in control, because in the ancient Near East, a patriarch like Jethro ruled his clan, and Moses' family wasn't going anywhere without his permission. 
Maybe the fact of how difficult this question is is why Moses seems to kind of step around the real issue and not even tell the whole truth. He doesn't talk about the burning bush or God or what he experienced in the wilderness. Rather, he simply says, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. I think even in this, we can start to see some of the anxiety that Moses is feeling about what God has called him to. He saw this miracle. He saw a bush engulfed in flames but not burning up. He met the Lord, the creator of everything. He met I am. He met God. He doesn't have the boldness to tell Jethro about that. Rather, he just tries to come up with a nice, calm excuse, maybe one that even implies he won't have to run into any Egyptians and face death. He says, hey, can I go back to my brothers in Egypt and see are they alive? Moses is probably surprised when Jethro says, sure, go in peace, right? That was kind of easy. We know from later in Exodus that Jethro himself would become a faithful man of God, and so it stands to reason that maybe God was working on his heart here and preparing him to say yes to Moses at the right time. And then as soon as Jethro tells Moses to go, the Lord steps in again and tells him to go again. He says, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. But don't miss this. We're still at the beginning of our passage. And yet two of the factors that would have made God's call on Moses' life extremely anxiety-inducing, made it extremely difficult, talking to his father-in-law and facing certain death at the hand of the Egyptians, God has already cleared up. See, God waited in the desert to call Moses until Jethro was ready to say yes to go. And God waited to call Moses until everyone in Egypt who wanted him dead was dead themselves. He's waited to the right moment. He's in complete control. We call that God's sovereignty, how he is in control of everything. And he's prepared the place and called Moses at just the right time. So you read that Moses goes. He takes his wife and his sons. He puts them on a donkey, by the way, not the last holy family in Scripture that will ride a donkey into Egypt. And then he takes the staff of God in his hand. Don't miss this last bit in these first couple verses. Jason said a few weeks ago that when Moses came up out of Egypt, he was still bearing the marks of an Egyptian. We know this because Zipporah and her sisters, when they ran into him at the well, they said, an Egyptian helped us. He looked like an Egyptian. After 40 years in the desert, he's going back to Egypt, not as an Egyptian, but bearing a different mark, that of the prophet of the Lord, carrying the staff of the Lord in his hand. And as the prophet of the Lord, God would continue to speak to him. Look at Exodus 4, verse 21, and we'll read the next couple verses. God speaks again. It says, and the Lord said to Moses... Now, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You can stop there. So, so something happens here that often happens in our call with God, right? So when Moses was on the holy mountain, if we were to go back and read, what you would see is that God gave him miracles and called him to go and deliver the people out of Egypt and deliver them into the desert to sacrifice to God. What God never told Moses was that he was going to have to be face-to-face with Pharaoh. You know, as anxiety-inducing as our callings sometimes are, I think God is also merciful sometimes to hold things back from us until our faith is at the point where we're ready to hear them. And so now maybe that Moses' faith has improved a bit and he's seen God miraculously deliver him out of Midian, God fills him in and says, hey, you're not going just to show these miracles to the Israelites. You're going to go into the very court of Pharaoh and you're going to tell him to let my people go. 
And then we hear this line that's the source of a lot of confusion and, and, and even questioning in the church where, where God tells Moses that he's going to harden the heart of Pharaoh so that Pharaoh won't let the people go. Can I be honest? When I, when I read that, and I've read this verse many times, I'm not, always com- I'm not comfortable with it. Like, wait a minute, do I serve a God who like chooses to harden people so they don't get to hear the truth? Here's what we know. In the next few chapters of Exodus, in fact, in chapter 7 through 9, we are going to read six times where, where Pharaoh hardens his own heart when he's given the Lord's truth from Moses. Six times where Pharaoh decides to harden himself and turn himself off from the truth. Only after those six times that Pharaoh rejects God will God then begin to lean into it and harden Pharaoh's heart further. Like I know that the teaching team at Fielder is going to do a great job unpacking that as you get to those chapters. But can I just give you three thoughts on this? Because I think it's an important lesson for us today. One, there are people all around us, in our, in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces, and even sometimes in our churches, who think they are holding back the plan of God, who are in reality playing right into his hand. Secondly, if you are one of those and you choose to harden yourself to God, you choose to reject his truth, he is under no obligation to save you from yourself. Augustine, a famous pastor and theologian from well over a thousand years ago, he put it this way. He said that God does not harden us. He does not harden men by putting evil into them. There's already enough evil there. Rather, he hardens men by not giving them mercy because by definition, God is under no obligation to offer us mercy. And so if we turn ourselves off to him, he's under no obligation to save us from ourselves. But then third and finally, I think we see here, even just beginning to move into the story, that God is sovereign not only in the end goal, but God is sovereign in every single step of what he's calling Moses to do. Now, I said earlier that God's calling my life often gives me anxiety. Maybe you're like me, right? God calls us to something. We start making the checklist. So if you're like Moses, okay, I got to go to Israel, and I got to tell the people we're going to go into the desert and make sacrifices. I got to convince the Egyptians. He's like making a mental checklist of all the things that would have to happen. What we see is that God has already made that list, and it is way better than anything Moses could ever come up with. That God was sovereign to call Moses. He was sovereign to prepare Jethro. He was sovereign to make sure the warrants had expired in Egypt, and now he is sovereign to prepare to use even the slave master to free his people from slavery. We can't miss this. God is in control of every area of this story. But Moses still had a part to play. Look at the next verse with me in verse 24, and we'll, we'll read of the journey of Moses from Midian to Egypt. We read that at a lodging place upon the way, so it's probably like an oasis. It's somewhere where, where, where caravans would have camped. You can still see this in the Middle East today. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him, that's Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, remember that's Moses' wife, she took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. All right, so I'll be honest. Like when I first got this passage assigned, I thought it was like a prank, right? Like I got to fly all the way in from San Diego and teach about Zipporah's circumcision of Moses' son. A passage that has been debated for, like a th- for thousands of years by Jewish and Christian scholars alike, right? There's still debate about what in the world does she mean by bridegroom of blood? What's going on in the Hebrew here? When it says he let him alone, is that the Lord or is that an angel? There's a lot of questions 
that we have about this passage. And you know, I'm not going to answer any of them. Because you know what? No matter what questions you ask and what questions scholars raise, key truths about the Lord come through. And here they are. Circumcision was really important to the people of Israel. It was the symbol of Abraham, Moses' forefather. It was literally what identified the men of the children of Israel as being part of the children of Israel, being part of the people of God. And it was a tradition that we know was alive and well even in the time of Moses, which is significant because Moses, remember, God has to reintroduce himself to Moses. The Israelites have forgotten a lot about the God of Abraham that they're supposed to follow, but they had not forgotten about this. Moses knew that his son should have been circumcised, especially when he was returning back to his people, the Israelites. And yet for whatever reason, Moses' son was not circumcised. Maybe Zipporah herself had not allowed Moses to do it because it wasn't the tradition of her people. We don't know. What we know is that this was an act of disobedience on Moses' part towards God. And we know he knew it because of the way that he and Zipporah reacted when God sought to put him to death. Don't miss this. God loved Moses too much to allow him to continue in his calling towards Egypt with willful sin in his life. He loved him too much to allow him to step into the great and incredible things he was going to do before Pharaoh with this hidden sin in his life because God knows that hidden sin, when it takes root, will destroy both the man and the ministry. I think this is why the Apostle Paul wrote what he did in Romans 12. You don't have to turn there, but it'll be on screen. But in Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, maybe you've heard these words before. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by the testimony, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. See, what Paul's saying is that if you want to know what God has for you, it's not on you to figure it out. It's on you to seek holiness, and then God will reveal it. And Moses was walking into God's plans with unholiness in his life. As I was here yesterday, and I wasn't planning to spend much on this part of the passage, but I was walking around this stage and just preparing to speak, and I just felt really strongly from the Holy Spirit that there are people in this room that need to hear this. Fielder does a great job. Fielder Church is amazing at letting you know, especially for students and young adults, all the different ways that God may call you in this world. He may call you to the other side of the world, or he may just call you to the other side of the street, but he's calling you somewhere to advance the gospel to show love, to act justly, to foster and adopt, to train up our children in the Lord, which is one of the most radical acts of faith anyone could do in our day and age. We all have callings on our life. What the Holy Spirit pressed on me is that there are those of you in this room that know you have a calling, yet you think you can get away with a secret sin in your life while you pursue it. And let me just tell you, God loves you too much to allow that to continue. And if you stay in that sin, and if there's somewhere in your life where you know what God's calling you to do, you know what God's calling you to change, and you have not done it, don't be surprised when the Lord diverts you away from your Egypt and does not allow you to continue in your calling. And to do such would be an act of love. Like I said, it was an act of love on the, on the part of God to stop Moses from continuing in this willful sin because the sin would have blossomed into destruction. I am so tired of seeing my friends from seminary change their Facebook status from married to single. I am so tired in my city and elsewhere of hearing about church plants that have imploded 
about people whose lives are cracked and broken because they saw a leader fail spectacularly in sin. And when you run the tape back, when you zoom in and dial in, it always started with something like this. Some small area where God had called them to obedience and they had disobeyed. God stopped Moses. Moses and Zipporah obeyed. Their son was circumcised and now it's time to move forward. And here's what I want you to hear from me before we read this last passage because watch what's about to happen. We have heard of God moving and we've just heard of a really difficult thing that Moses had to do to be obedient. But it stands to reason that if you were Moses and you've been on this journey, you're about to enter into Egypt, you think the hard part's about to begin. And as we'll see in future chapters, in some ways it is, but not in this passage. Because watch what happens after the mountaintop and the difficult conversations and the fight with God and, and, and the random middle of the night like medical procedure. Watch what God does when Moses gets to Egypt. Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 27, we read that the Lord said to Aaron, remember that's Moses' brother, that's who God told him was going to be his mouthpiece. That's probably one of the people that turned Moses in for murder 40 years ago. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he, that's Aaron, went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And what happened? Did they reject him? Did they call the Egyptians? Did they throw him out? No. The people believed. When they had heard what the Lord had visited his people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Man, isn't it amazing when we get to experience these moments in life when God has called us to something really hard that we've built up as being difficult or impossible, that we've come up with a thousand reasons why it's not going to work, but then we step in faith anyway and we realize that God has already brought it all together. That's what happened to Moses here in this passage. It reminds me of a conversation I had about a year ago. So something that is kind of cool on the 4th of July just to share, and I know a lot of you know this, but my city, San Diego, very heavily military. In fact, there's about 250,000 uh, military personnel, mostly Navy and Marines, that are within our county, and there's another half a million to million who are either retired or veterans. So it's like one in every five to six people you meet is connected to the U.S. military. So it should come to no surprise to you then that in my ministry in San Diego, at, at Mesa Church, we get to deal with a lot of military personnel. In fact, the very first discipleship group I got to lead in San Diego that I started within two weeks of moving there two years ago was with two young naval officers. They're helicopter pilots. In fact, one of them used to go here at Fielder way back when he was in high school. And so that's how we got connected. And I started discipling him. And he brought along his roommate. And I found pretty quickly, as we would do these discipleship groups, we would go climb mountains and talk about Jesus, one of the sweetest times in my life. I learned that his roommate hadn't been to church in several years, hadn't been to church all through college and then even after college as he was in flight school and starting his training. And so we got to disciple him back into followership of Christ. And we got to see growth in his life where the first week he was saying he hadn't prayed in years. And within a couple months, he was praying for 30 minutes at night. Tremendous growth. And then I remember there was one Saturday where we got together. We went on our hike. We came back to my house and made some fancy coffee like I usually did. And he said, Charlie, there's something I need to tell you. It's great that I'm following Jesus again, but I don't know what to do about my relationship." And he shared that his, his girlfriend, which I'd heard a little bit about, he was dating a girl who was also in training, but on the other side of the country, 
his girlfriend didn't follow Jesus. And even beyond that, she came from a family where he was pretty sure there was militant atheism, where Jesus was belittled. And so he asked me, what do I do about this? Because God's convicting me. I need to make a decision if I'm going to pursue marriage with this woman and do right by her, but we're not supposed to be unequally yoked. And, and I just started following Jesus. How am I supposed to talk to her about Jesus? And it was amazing to see this really sharp guy who was top in his class at flight school, perfect shape, like knows everything about fixing cars and airplanes. He's a, a mechanical engineer, and he was paralyzed with anxiety at the call God had given him to talk to his girlfriend. So I didn't know what to say, right, because I don't have any answers. So I said, hey, let's pray about it. So we prayed for a month. Every time we got together, we would pray for his girlfriend by name. And we would pray for the conversation he was going to have. And we said, hey, before you see her in person again, you need to have this conversation on the phone. We feel that I just felt strongly about that. And so he said, okay, next week's going to be the week. We've been praying for four weeks. So we met on a Saturday. He said, Sunday, tomorrow, I'm going to call my girlfriend. I'm going to tell her about how my faith is changing. I want to follow Jesus. And we're going to talk about what it means for our relationship. Friends, I'm not making this up. The next day was the week before Easter. He called his girlfriend. And before he could start the conversation, she was too excited to start the conversation with him about how in the last month she had been invited to church, she had gone three times, she had gotten saved, and she was getting baptized the next Sunday. These are the stories that when we get to live, change how we see God's call. These are the stories that when we experience them, change our boldness when God's calling us to share the gospel with someone else. These are the stories that I want to go back and tell myself three years ago when I was so riddled with anxiety about how God was going to provide a way to San Diego, when all I could think about was my career and my job and my finances and, and selling my house and saving money. I want to tell them the stories of all the ways that God has moved. In fact, I've been asking myself this question this week, and you'll see why in a moment, but I've been wondering. Now, I've got some of these stories now, but it's still just a little bit, and I still act in anxiety. I've been wondering. That story I just shared is in my journal. I've been wondering, if I could go 40 years in the future, if I'm still alive, if I could go 40 years in the future, and I could open up my desk and grab my prayer journal from 40 years from now, and if we had it here this morning, what would I say to myself about following God's call? Because that's really the question we have to ask, right? Like, how do we want our story to end? So if you're here and there's a call on your life and there's something difficult, or maybe you're here and you're a parent, and there's a call on your, parent, on your children's life, and you're afraid and you're anxious, what would you want your future self to say? How do you want your story to end? Do you want us to open your journal and find that you stayed paralyzed in anxiety and never experienced these miraculous deliverances and plans of God? Or do you want to be able to say, trust God, because I've seen him work? You know what's neat? We don't have to ask that question of Moses because we actually have his journal. It's called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. If you flip just three books ahead, the last book, the book of Deuteronomy, and towards the end of it, you'll see in Deuteronomy 31, kind of where Moses' story ends. This is literally the end of his road. He's been told that he's going to die, and now he's passing on wisdom to Joshua, who will follow him. Now, before I read this, remember the Moses we've been seeing so far, impetuous and untrusting and anxious and controlling. And then listen to the words of this man 40 years later. We read in Deuteronomy 31, verse 7, that Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, not one-on-one, -on -one, but in the sight of all of Israel, in front of everybody, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people 
into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will, not, he will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Friends, what in the world happened to Moses in 40 years that could take him from being fearful to even speak to God's people, Israelite, and change him into a man who could tell Joshua, go into a land where you are outnumbered and your enemies are in fortified cities, but do so without fear because if God is with you, no one can stand against you. I will tell you what happened. What happened is obedience. What happened is the choice to overcome the fear that paralyzes and to trust that God goes before us in everything he calls us to. That's why I told Joshua, it is the Lord who goes before you. See, here's the thing about someone going before you though, right? As soon as you stop following them, by definition, they're no longer in front of you. By definition, they no longer go before you. And this is what we do so often with our callings, right? God calls us towards something, And he starts going that way, and we start following, and then we think, hey, you know, this isn't the right plan. I've got a better idea. And the second that we step out of followership, by definition, God no longer goes before us. Friends, today needs to be the day where we decide that in whatever God has called us to, no matter how difficult or challenging, we are no longer going to try and grab it ourselves and control it, but rather we are going to trust it to him and follow him in it. This doesn't mean we check our brain at the door. This doesn't mean that your plans might not be part of God's plans, but it means that whenever you feel God pulling you towards something, before you plot the GPS, before you list out the task list, you should seek him. You should check yourself to see if your life is holy and blameless as best you know. Are there sins you need to confess and turn away from? And then you should ask God to guide you. And when you find, you will find that when you do that, the anxiety will finally begin to subside. That's for those of us who follow Christ. There's others in this room, and they're dealing with an anxiety that I remember because it's an anxiety that's even more difficult. It's the anxiety of trying to save ourselves. If maybe you're here, you haven't made a decision to follow Christ, Maybe you've been here for a few weeks. You've seen people surrendering their lives to Christ, being baptized right here on this stage. And, and maybe you're here because you've sensed there's some bigger truth in the world, right? There's something drawing you to Christ. Maybe you'd like to be right with God. Maybe there's something in your life you know is wrong and you want it to change. And maybe you're one of those people where if I ask you honestly, hey, what do you think it'll take for you to be right with God? You would start to give me a list of all the things you think you need to change and all the things you think you need to do. Friend, let me tell you from experience, that is the most stressful situation you could ever be in life, trying to save yourself, because it is impossible. Because the Bible says it is impossible that we could save ourselves. It's not by our own works that we are saved, but by the grace of God. And if you stay in that place where you're trying to save yourself, you will go down a path of inescapable inescapable legalism, stress, and anxiety. In fact, you'll go down a path that's the opposite of what Scripture teaches about salvation. Our last passage this morning letter of Paul to the Ephesians. You can turn there. The words will be on screen. But listen to how Paul describes God's sovereign work, not only in what he calls us to in this life, but what he calls us to in salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 11, we read that in him, that's God, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God works everything together according to what he wants. 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of the glory. Now listen to how people were joined into Christ. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We read verse 13 again just so you get it. You also, these are new believers in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. There's only one response in the face of a sovereign God who desires to save us. It is to accept it and to worship him. In fact, that's what we saw in our passage in Exodus. You might have missed it, but at the very end of the passage, we read that the people bowed their head and worshiped when they found out that God had come to deliver them. In a moment, there's going to be a time of response. And I want to invite those of you who are here, who are followers of Christ, who's been moved by this message, to respond. You might have a calling you need to surrender to. You could do that in your seat. You could come down here to the altar. You could lay down and pray and be prayed over. There will be pastors who would love to join you in prayer. As I mentioned before, I sense, and I don't say this lightly, right, because I don't always hear very well, but I sense today that there are people in here that are holding back some secret sin they need to release. That there's something in your life you think no one knows about, but the Holy Spirit knows about, and it's going to wreck your life and your calling if you don't lay it down. Today, in the name of Jesus, would you come forward to lay that sin down, to confess it, to seek accountability, to seek help. We've already seen this happen in the chapel. I pray in Jesus' name it would happen in here. There are those of you who may just need prayer for another reason. You're going through loss or pain or uncertainty. You have questions about the faith. I invite you to come forward. The pastors would love to pray over you. But then finally, there are some of you in here, and you hear this whole story, and all you can think about is how you've never actually met this sovereign God who is guiding Moses. You've never actually surrendered to his call. Well, let me tell you this morning, just as Moses told the Israelites that God was coming to deliver them and save them, that if you were here in this room, something brought you here, and we follow a God who in his sovereignty desires for you to be saved. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should be saved. It's true. We don't have to argue this point. The world's pretty broken. We see this every week. We see shootings and disease and loss. But the good news is that God did not leave us here in the brokenness, but sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life. Then to die the death that we deserved, to rise again, overcoming sin and the grave, that by believing in him, men may be saved. Obviously, I mean men and women. Look, if that's you and you need to hear the gospel this morning, I want to invite you to come forward in a moment. Talk to one of the pastors. Profess faith in Christ, and you can be baptized this very morning. And don't worry, they'll explain what goes into that. They'll talk to you and make sure you're ready for the decision. There are clothes available. Let this be the day when you decide to surrender and worship to your king. Now, in a moment, the music will begin. The altar will be open. I invite you to respond as the Lord leads.